All right, our scripture reading tonight is Genesis chapter 40. We will be in the entire chapter. Although, to be honest, we're going to be playing off some themes that we've already talked about in chapter 39 and, and thinking forward a little bit into things that we've not gotten to yet, but but uh, we'll come to that as we get through the text. So, uh, Genesis chapter 40. Starting verse 1, it says, Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And the pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? And they said to him, we have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell me, tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said, In my dream, there was a vine before me, and on the vine, there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. The Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit." When the chief baker saw the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uttermost, uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for the Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, the Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we give thanks to you for your word. We thank you for the fact that we um, can come and see uh, who you are, that you have revealed yourself to us through your word. God, that you have um, shown us your character, that you have told us who you are, that you have told us who we are, um, that you have shown us um, the situation, the plight that we have gotten ourselves into through our sin and rebellion. God, that you have shown us uh, your plan of salvation, 
that you have shown us your son, Jesus Christ, and his accomplishment of that plan. Now you've shown us how to be saved and how to live as those who are saved. God, we thank you for your word that we do not trust in, in, um, God, the opinions of man, that we do not trust in the ways of the world, that we do not, um, place our hope or our lives or our convictions or our values in any of those things, but we place them in your word. Father, help us as we open your word today to glean from it what you would have us to glean. Um, help us to learn the things that you would have us to learn. God, we thank you for your church, and we thank you for the fact that we, as brothers and sisters in Christ, can join together um, to to share our lives with one another, to uh, be in relationship with each other, to have a place that we can grow, people who know us and care for us, people who will encourage us, um, when we are hurting, people who will celebrate with us when we are um, in times of joy in our life. God, people who will hold us accountable when we when we stray from the things of, of your word. Um, God, we thank you for the ways that your word and the church come together. We thank you for the gospel ministry that goes forth each week from the churches of Blount County. And we ask that you would, by your spirit, um, go before in each of those places. God, that your word would go forth from those pulpits, go forth from those classrooms, go forth from those individuals standing at water coolers. God, and that as your word goes forth, that it would not return to you void, but that it would accomplish its purposes in calling the lost to Christ, calling the saved um, to, to greater faith and love and obedience to Jesus Christ. And that, God, that you would grow your church, that you would pour out revival on our community, that that would start in the house of God, that it would start in the families of the church, that it would start um, with the individuals who are followers of Jesus Christ. God, bring, bring revival to our hearts and bring revival to our community. God, as we open your word, we thank you, we praise you, use it to honor yourself and to bless us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's go back. Um, as we continue this story, I want to jump back. I know our passage was in in Genesis chapter 40, but let's jump back to the very end of Genesis 39 um, and, and get sort of a running start just to, to make a few comments as we go. So in verse chapter 39, verse 20, it says, and just remember this, how the story has gone. So J- Joseph has uh, been falsely accused by uh, Potiphar's wife, um, and now uh, Joseph has been thrown in prison. And so in verse 20, it says, Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Uh, so Greg Long, um, the, the former pastor of Mother Church, tells a funny story about how, uh, so he does, uh, he's, he's very involved in chaplain ministry, particularly with, um, uh, law enforcement officials. And at one point they had gone to South America to train prison guards 
in this chaplaincy program, and they also had an opportunity to go to a local prison there and to minister and to speak the gospel to the prisoners there. But there was an interesting scenario in, in, in that place is when they went to the prison, they had to get permission from the prisoners to go in and share the gospel. Because the way this prison worked basically is that the convicts were the ones who functionally ran it. That it was a little society within these buildings and the guards were there to keep those prisoners from getting out. But anything that went on within that prison had to go through the proper channels of the prisoners in the prison, or there might be a danger of violence or things like that, right? I thought about that story because that's not the same thing that's going on in this passage, okay? Um, Joseph is given charge over this, this, this prison that he is in, but it's because he is a man of character and conviction and, and, and they can see the Lord working in him. Right. Not because of the threat of violence or something like that that we saw in in that story from Greg. But Joseph continues to serve faithfully in broken the broken situation that he finds himself in. All right. And he does that with integrity. He does that. Um, he fulfills his tasks. He is trustworthy. In, in the first case, he became the master of his master's house, even though he was a slave. Now he finds himself a criminal. Um, or at least in prison um, as a criminal, and yet he's put in charge of the prison, and and now he is taking care of this. And and during as he's showing integrity, as he's fulfilling his task, this strange set of occurrences happens: divine appointments. All right, preordained the providence of God in Joseph's life because all of a sudden, two men arrive at this prison with him, both closely associated with. The most powerful man in Egypt, probably at this time, the most powerful man literally in the world. Yes, they are on the outs with that most powerful man in the world. But again, the way politics works, we all know that you may be out one day and and you may come back into that powerful person's good graces in the near future. And these two men have both had these strange dreams, dreams that they sense immediately are not just the fantasies of our, of our subconscious, right? Like you've all had those bonkers dreams that after you wake up in the morning, you just go, man, I don't know what that was about. That was just some, I must have, you know, had too much ice cream before I went to bed or something like that, My, that I was having all these crazy things. That's not what happens with these guys. They have these dreams and immediately sense that there's more to them, that somehow they are being told something from their perspective from the gods uh, or something like that. And, and wouldn't you know it, it just so happens that there's a guy in the prison um, who has a history of having strange dreams that come to him from the Lord and that he has been given the interpretation of those dreams. And that person is obviously Joseph. Now, think about this. You've got these two high-powered guys, these two people who are in positions of authority in in the Pharaoh's court, okay? It would make every bit of sense to get in those two guys' good graces, right? To hobnob with them in some way, to, to form relationships with them so that they liked you and maybe could help you out in the future. In fact, we see that that's exactly, in a sense, what happens in the passage, right? Joseph says, hey, remember me when you come back to Pharaoh. Mention my name to Pharaoh, because I'm not supposed to be here. I've, I've been unjustly imprisoned. 
But you know what also is in the moment, it would make all the sense in the world to tell both of these guys what they want to hear. You think about that? So when these guys say, hey, what does my dream mean? It would make all the sense in the world to endear yourself to both of them so that maybe when they get out of prison, they will be kind to you. The connection that you've made will help you to get out of trouble. But obviously there's a problem. Which horse to back, right? Which guy do you, are you kind to? If, if they're both guilty of the offense that they've been accused of, then it probably won't matter because they're going to end up with their heads cut off anyway. But if one of them is guilty and the other one is exonerated, then you may have the ear of Pharaoh because you've schmoozed and, and, and spoke kindly to this person. So again, which one do you pick? How do you know which one is the one who's going to make it? Well, the obvious answer seems to play the odds and just be nice to both of them. Tell them both what they want to hear. Give them both good interpretations of their dreams. Pat them on the back and say, buddy, it's going to be fine. You're going to be out of here soon. The Lord has already decreed. Everything is going to go well. We see things like this happen in the scriptures in various places. Do you remember the story of the righteous king of Judah, Jehoshaphat, and the wicked king of Israel, King Ahab, and they're getting ready to go to war against Syria. And Jehoshaphat recognizes, he says, hey, you know what, before we go to war, we should probably ask the prophets what God thinks about all this. Is it a good idea for us to go to war? Are we going to win? Are we going to lose? And so he says, let's ask the prophets what, what they say. And the 400 prophets of Ahab, the wicked king, show up and they say, it's going to be fine. The Lord is with you. He's going to bless you with this amazing victory. And you guys are just going to conquer the Assyrians and it's going to all be good. There are always false prophets out there who love to tickle your ears, right? To tell you all the things that you want to hear that are going to make you feel good and whatever else. But Jehoshaphat, being a righteous king, he recognizes that these guys are probably not the people that we should be listening to. And so he says, you know, Ahab, don't you have like any of the prophets of the Lord who are still around? Like, are there no prophets of the one true God who still live in your area? And Ahab says, well, there's this one guy, his name is Micaiah, but I hate him, okay, because he always gives me bad news, right? He always tells me that I'm not doing what I'm supposed to and that God's going to judge me and stuff like that. And so Jehoshaphat's like, well, maybe we should talk to this guy. And so Micaiah shows up, and, and there's a little bit of interesting situation that goes on. But eventually Micaiah says, hey, man, you're going to lose, and Ahab, you're going to die. You're not even going to make it through this battle. And what does Ahab do? He says, turn this guy in prison. Throw this guy in prison and don't let him out until I come back alive. And basically, Micaiah says, if I ever see you again, then the Lord has not spoken to me. But he doesn't ever see him again because he was right. He told him exactly what was going to happen. He was an honest prophet. And so the reality is this. Joseph can't give these two men the answers that they want. He just has to give them the answers that are true. In fact, he points that out in the passage. What does he say? He says, he doesn't say, I have the power to interpret dreams. That's not what he says. He says, is it not God who interprets dreams? He's the one who gives the interpretation. And so the God who has power to interpret will tell me what the message of the dream is, and then I will convey that to you. Joseph, out of integrity, out of his own truth-telling, 
can only relay what God has told him to. Whether that news is good news or bad news, that's another characteristic that we see throughout the scriptures. Do you remember when Samuel uh, has, he's a little boy, right? And, and he's, and he's serving in the temple along with the high priest Eli. And one night Samuel has a voice from God and he thinks it's Eli talking to him and they go back and forth. And he says, go back to bed, son. And then he gets back up and he's like, somebody's calling my name. And he's like, Oh, it's the Lord. Ask the Lord what he wants of you. And so the Lord talks to Samuel. And what does he say? He says, Eli's sons are unfaithful. They're wicked and they're going to be killed. Go tell Eli that. And so he shows back up a little boy talking to the high priest of Israel. And, and Eli says, what has God said to you? I don't know about you, but if I was little boy Samuel, I'd be scared to death to tell him what God had said. And yet we know that Samuel is the true prophet of God, even as a little child, because he says exactly what God has told him. And he says, sorry, but your sons are going to end up dead because they're wicked. And Eli accepts that and says, he is the Lord. He'll do what he he sees is right. But that integrity and truth telling keep, we keep on seeing that. All right. We keep on seeing that Joseph is a man of integrity despite his circumstances. Even when it seems like what is best for him personally, um, he's actually working against in some way. And so what does he say? Cupbearer, your head will be lifted up and you'll be returned to your position. Baker, your head will also be lifted up from your body, right? And you will be hung on a noose. Integrity tells the truth. Doesn't mean we have to be jerks about it. Doesn't mean that we say it in a, in a, uh, coarse or, or gruff kind of way, but integrity has to tell the truth. And notice this. Here's the important thing about the passage, or at least one of the important things. It doesn't end up being Joseph's connections that get him out of prison. What ends up get, getting him out of prison is the fact that he told the truth and was a man of integrity. Because here's what happened, remember? Remember what happens at the end of the passage? Jesus, I mean, uh, Joseph forms a relationship with the cupbearer. Hey, man, everything's going to be fine. You're going to be good. The Pharaoh's going to give you every, put you back in your position. And then what does the cupbearer do? He forgets him. Um, he doesn't care about this random dude in prison. He doesn't, it didn't matter that he was, ki- Joseph was kind to him or, or said these kind things. He completely forgets him. He doesn't think when he gets out of prison, oh, I should help that dude out who is nice to me. The relationship in this case doesn't matter at all. Even though we would feel that would be the natural thing to kind of schmooze and and get in good with somebody. But then what happens when a crisis arises, and we're going to see that in the next chapter, when the Pharaoh has a weird dream that he knows is from God, the cupbearer doesn't say, you know, I knew a really nice guy back there in prison. Maybe we should ask that really nice guy who was really kind to me. That's not what he says. He says, I know a guy who interprets dreams, and he's right every time. We should ask that guy what your dream mean, means. And that's the thing that ends up being the means by which Joseph gets out of prison. And so Joseph's honesty, his truth-telling, are the very things that end up being um, his escape from the situation we're in. But we're kind of jumping ahead, so so we'll pull back again. But think about the situation that he finds himself in and how it keeps on seemingly going downhill. One of the themes that plays out in this story, and we've already referenced a couple of times as we've gone through it, 
is the tension between God blessing you and at the same time, things getting worse. Okay? We talked about last week, or, or two weeks ago. God, keep. he is with Joseph. He is blessing him. He is causing him to prosper. And yet, things keep on getting worse in Joseph's life. So, verse 2 says, The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. This is back in 39. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. There's that tension there. God is caring and blessing for Joseph, and yet at the very same time, things are getting worse. It's a hard thing to be hated by your family, right? It's a hard thing. It's even harder when that hatred leads to betrayal. It's even harder when that betrayal leads to slavery. It's even harder when that slavery leads to false accusation. It's even harder when that false accusation leads to unjust imprisonment. Right? Joseph's life is on a downward trajectory. It's not getting better. Okay? And yet, we are told over and over again, God is with Joseph. But we also realize that he is on a descending ladder. Or slide. Right? Shoes and ladders. It's the slides that take you down. It's the ladders that go up. So there's this terrible tension there, right? To be told that God is with you and to continue to suffer in greater and greater ways. And here's the deal, folks. That is something that is hard for our hearts to grasp. And yet it's a theme that we see over and over and over again in Scripture. David, as another type of Christ is going to experience this, okay? How do we first meet David in the scriptures? Pretty much the first thing that happens to him. You know what happens to him? He's out in the field shepherding, and the prophet of God shows up and says, you are the anointed of God. You are the future king of Israel. It's all coming to you, David, and you're like, pinnacle. And then what happens the rest of the story? It's like, uh, 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 and it keeps on their high points, right? Their victories. There's the David and Goliath incident, right? There's his, um, finally when Saul is defeated and he takes the throne, there are these peaks. And yet this overall arc of his life seems to be going downhill in many ways. And again, we should be honest. Some of that's because of David's own stupidity and, and sin, but the picture is still there. David does not have a simple life that just keeps on getting better. And yet God is faithful. God is with him through the whole thing. But we see this idea. It's something that we, again, don't talk about in the church very often. This idea of God humbling us. Or actually, and let me use an even stronger word, the idea of God humiliating us. That there are times when the Lord says, I'm going to put you through something, or I'm at least going to allow you to go through this thing. And I will be with you the whole time, but it is going to get harder and harder and harder. What if humiliation is the path that God has you on? That is a hard thing for us 
to come to grips with in our own hearts. We all instinctively feel like when things go bad, and you know this, you feel the same thing, when things are going bad in your life, what is your gut reaction if you are not rock solid grounded in the gospel? You know what your first reaction is when things start going bad? God must be mad at me. God is punishing me for something I have done. He is against me. I am being punished because I've done something wrong. I've not been faithful enough. That is at least partially because, and again, we we are continuing to think of God in terms of the law and not in terms of God's grace. We are thinking in terms of as, as a lost person would and not in terms of a person who is a child of God. And then what happens as we go down that path? We begin that never-ending search for what is it that I've done that God is so mad at? And therefore, how can I fix that so he'll stop punishing me in this ways? And and, and guess what? If you're honest, every single one of us, there's a 100,000 reasons that God could hate you. Right? There's a hundred thousand reasons that God could be mad at you for something. You've never, there's so many things that he could be mad at. And then guess what? We start to think of those things. And what does the devil do? The devil comes in and accuses us. And the devil starts reminding of these things and saying, you know what? It's obvious that that's the deal. God is mad at you. He's angry. Um, you should doubt the compassion of God, which makes us run even further from him and hide our sin from him even more. And we go down the spiral. But here's the problem. If you've made a wrong turn, you know what the best way forward is? Turn around and go backwards, right? If you've made a wrong turn and you're down this road of um, thinking that God is against you and hates you and is punishing you, you should stop and go back up because you've already made a wrong turn because that's not the case. It, what do we say in our in our assurance verse, right? If God loved you so much when you were lost and a sinner to give his own son and his own son's blood for your life, Do you think he loves you less now that you're one of his children? No, he is more gracious to you. And so what's the answer? We need to turn around and go back and say, I've made a wrong turn in my understanding of these events. My humiliation does not mean that God hates me. So go back to our story. Does God hate Joseph? He doesn't, right? We know that. Is God angry with Joseph? No, he's not. Is God punishing Joseph? Again, no. God is, chapter 39, eight times, blessing Joseph, caring for Joseph, making Joseph prosper, and yet things are getting worse and worse. We see a similar phenomenon in Job's story in the scriptures. So his friends, as they counsel poor, sore, ridden, dogs licking you, family dead, everything's awful, sitting at the gates of the city Job, his friends come to counsel him. And what do they say? It's obvious that you sinned, dude, because you were under the judgment of God. It's obvious that you've done something wrong or things wouldn't be going so poorly in your life. God is punishing you, so you're under God's wrath, so repent. Just turn back to God. 
and God will have mercy on you and everything will go great. Except what is Job's rebuttal again and again throughout the book, admittedly kind of irreverently at various points, is Job says, that's not true. I'm a good dude. Okay, I admit that I'm not perfect because nobody's perfect, but I've certainly not done anything that would warrant the kind of suffering that I'm going through. I haven't lived that kind of life. And so you guys say that's what's going on, but it's not what's going on. I haven't done anything. And here's the cool thing. When we read the book of Job, what do we read? In chapter one, what happens in chapter one? In chapter one, we recognize this, this cool thing that happens. We find out why Job is suffering. And the answer is because it's hard to say it this way, but because God has taken a bet from the devil that the devil said, I see your servant Job. I bet you I can make him crack. I bet you I can make him curse your name. And God says, well, let's see if you can do it. And he allows it to happen. Now, here's the cool thing. Everybody reads that passage, okay? And they go, man, that's a weird thing. I'm not sure if I'm comfortable with God having a bet with Satan over my health and happiness, right? That doesn't seem right, but you're missing the point of it. You know why that part's in there? It's to give us insider knowledge that the things that are going on in Job's life are not a function of him being punished, right? We get to have the story, and it's a long story, 42 chapters or something like that, Job. We get the whole story framed for us from chapter one. Job has done nothing wrong. He is not a a profligate sinner. He is not somebody who has incurred God's wrath. He's actually a righteous man and has tried to lead his family righteously. And yet these things are happening because they are the will of God, not because of this, um, this other stuff that these friends are saying. And so again, it's, it's, it's hard to, for us to put all of those things together. People, um, they get stuck in the weirdness of these these situations, but we have to remind ourselves of what the Bible is over and over saying. Your difficult circumstances do not mean that God is against you. If you are in Christ, God is for you already. He is working and providing, and caring, and comforting, and he is right next to you, even in the midst of the most dire circumstances. The same is true here. God is not mad at Joseph. He is not against him. We know that from the third-person information we discovered in chapter 39, right? God didn't have to tell us over and over again eight times that he was with Joseph, and he was blessing Joseph, but he wants to remind us of that. Again, I, I talked about this the very first week, is that some people read Joseph's uh, you know, well, I'm going to be the savior of the world, kind of, as if he's arrogant or if he's, you know, um, he's trying to put on air or whatever. That's not the case. We might read this story and go, yeah, God is humbling him because that's that Joseph kid. He was just so full of himself. And so God's taking him down a few notches. That's what this story is about. Chapter 39 says, nope, that's not what's going on. Joseph isn't being punished in this story. He's just having to go through this time of humiliation because this is the will of God. And it's going towards something, though. 
So here's the deal. You would look at a story like this. You and I would. If we were in the middle of Joseph's story, we would probably get to a point where we would start blaming God for all of these things. We would say, God, this is your fault. You're the one who's not taking care of me. You're the one who's allowed these things to happen. You're the one who is not blessing and, and making my life go easier. But here's the deal. When we look at this story, who is it that hates Joseph? It's not God. God's not the one who hates Joseph. We are the ones who hate Joseph. Mankind is the one that hates Joseph. Think about the story. It's not God who is the absentee father who engenders jealousy and hatred among his children. That was Jacob. It's not God that is murderous and treacherous and a betrayer of his kin. That's Jacob's sons. It's not God who is a human trafficker treating men who were made in the image of God as if they are commodities. That's the Ishmaelites. It's not God who is a lustful and exploitative attempted rapist who, after being scorned and rejected, falsely accuses Joseph. That's Potiphar's wife. And finally, isn't God who forgets Joseph? The cupbearer does. It is people who are causing this sin, people who are doing these things. And yet, what is the theme that we see at the end of this book? It says, the things that man meant for evil, God meant for good. That's the that's the, the summarizing theme of the story of Joseph. These evil people have done these evil things to hurt Joseph, and they have caused his continual humiliation, and yet God has allowed that and been with Joseph all the time. And that final hurt, that final being forgotten, is the thing that we're going to close in on tonight as we think about how Joseph is a type of Jesus Christ, how he foreshadows significant themes in the life of Christ and in our own lives in some certain ways. Because here's the reality. The idea of being forgotten is a huge hurt. In, in the world and in the church, we are living in, at least in the United States, one of the most lonely times in, in probably our history. Uh, COVID accelerated that, right? COVID isolated us and pulled us out of community and made all these things even worse. But we are living in an epidemic of loneliness in our society. People are cut off. People are alone. They live and feel as if no one knows who they are and everyone has forgotten them and they are on these islands um, all by themselves. Maybe it starts when a loved one passes or a relationship drifts or a conflict divides us. And yet the truth is we all know that we can feel completely alone and forgotten by God, even in the midst of a great crowd, even when we have some of those good relationships in our lives. As we turn our attention back to that idea of Joseph's humiliation, as we see him descending in humiliation, as it gets worse and worse, we tie that back to the life of Christ. Because we see the same thing happening in the life of Christ in the New Testament. A passage that we return to often, Philippians chapter 2, says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, 
being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Jesus is humbled. Jesus is humiliated. Jesus steps down from the glory of heaven into the incarnation, takes on flesh, and from incarnate man to be a servant, and from a servant to be obedient to the point of death, and from not just obedient to the point of death, but even death and the humiliation of the cross. Jesus continues down this path of humiliation. And the terminus of that descent, the last stop before his death, I would argue, sort of the rock bottom of Jesus' fall comes on the cross right before his death when he utters what we call the cry of dereliction, which is what? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forgotten me? Why am I cut off from you? In that moment, Jesus feels forgotten. He feels cut off. He feels like God is not watching and he has abandoned him. The son who has never been alone, who has etern- who is eternally begotten of the father, who has always experienced the warmth and closeness of the fellowship with the father in that moment feels cut off from him, feels alone, feels forsaken, feels abandoned. The reason why I say feels over and over again is because I don't want you to misunderstand that we believe that in the moment of the cross, the Trinity gets broken somehow, right? Like Jesus doesn't actually cease to be connected to the Father. That's in, Jesus is God. He is one with the Father. He could not be other, okay? And so we don't think that the Trinity breaks when we're on the cross. But what we do th- say is that Jesus is experiencing the forgottenness and the forsakenness that all of us experience at some point. Because Jesus is our perfect substitute, Jesus for us and for our salvation, he experiences that sense of being forgotten and forsaken, that devastating reality of being alone that that was caused by the fall. So that feeling... I think is the seed of atheism. We all experience it at some point, right? We all feel that aloneness in our hearts and wonder, man, is there really a God? Is there anything out there? We all feel that way sometime. And it is the seed of a- atheism. And if we let it and we nurture it and it grows to full, um, uh, full life, it is the, it is, it is nihilism. Right. It is the essence of saying there is no purpose. There is nothing out there. We are alone in the universe and no one is coming to hell. That's the last stop on Joseph's descent. I think it is the last stop on Jesus descent. I think. And he experiences it because it is what we all experience at certain times in our life. We all feel that way. And Jesus has to experience everything that we experience except being without sin. That aloneness can feel so real in the midst of trial, right? It can feel so real in the midst of tragedy. But here's the reality. It is not true. It's not 
the case. For the one who is united with God in Christ, you will never be forgotten. You could never be forgotten. The scriptures literally say, your name is engraven on his hands. Isaiah says, can a woman forget her nursing child? that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb. Even if these forget, yet I will not forget you. Again, behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. That is to say, figuratively, every time God looks down, your name is there before him. He couldn't forget you any more than a mother could forget her nursing child. And yet... Things keep on getting worse for Joseph, and that is the mystery of providence. We are going to get into that next week a little bit more. We're going to talk about that theme of providence a little more in depth. But that is the culminating line. Again, we've already mentioned it that we will come back to at the end of this story, is that in God's providence, what God, what man meant for evil, God intended for good. I'll close a couple of weeks ago. I mentioned that, you know, I was talking about Facebook again, cause it's the devil. And I was, I was talking about this person had posted this meme and like everything in me wanted to write something back. And I didn't. And because I figured it just start a fight. Um, but this is what the meme basically said. It was this thing. And it said, you know, you never, this, this person is an atheist. And the person said, you know, you never see people come to faith or come to Christ or come to religion when they're in a good place in their life. They always come to Christ out of some sort of tragedy or brokenness. That's because faith is, is parasitic on the weak that it comes to people who are hurting and takes advantage of them and sucks them in, right? Um, and I thought to myself, you know what, buddy? It seems the exact opposite to me. It's that the, the people who walk away from Christ or walk away from faith, something bad happens in their life and all of their hopes and expectations are broken. And their life seems to be going in a downward trajectory. And at that moment, what do they say? God's not here. If he ever existed, he certainly doesn't care anything about me or he wouldn't have let these things happen. And so therefore I deny him. Um, maybe I'm denying the air because he doesn't even exist. Right? Really, the truth is, is this. When you're in a moment of crisis, things change. Okay. That's really what the case is, is crisis is a moment that can lead some people to faith and some people away from God, right? And that's exactly what we're talking about in this passage. In this moment of crisis, I'm sure Joseph is in the midst of it going, God, just what are you doing? Could you just give me a break, okay? Things keep on getting worse, but guess what? What has been happening, and this is what we're talking about next week, God has been setting something up, probably literally for a decade plus in the life of Joseph. He has been putting him in places so that at the proper time, everything will change. That the evil that has happened in Joseph's life will turn out not only for his own good, but for the salvation of the world. It's hard to see that, but you're going to experience that in your life. 
We've talked about it before. It's coming, folks. I don't know what it is in your own life, whether it is prolonged illness, whether it is the death of a loved one, whether whether it is a um, a horrible phone call at 2 a.m. in the night, but it's coming. And at that moment of crisis, do you say, well, it is obvious that God is not with us or he wouldn't have let this happen? Or do you say, man, I don't know why these bad things are happening, but I know that God is with me because I'm in Christ. Because I'm his child. He has redeemed me and bought me with the blood of Jesus Christ. I am his. He belongs. There's no other explanation. God is with me. I'm just going to have to go through these difficult things right now. And maybe one day we'll find out why those things are the case. And maybe we won't. I don't know what heaven's going to look like in those terms. Maybe God will explain it all. Maybe he won't. Maybe we just end up having to say, God, you are good. You are wise. And I trust you in whatever decision you make. But we're about to shift. The story's about to, because he's hit rock bottom. If you're just like, if you're like, Ash, it's just gotten more depressing every single week. Um, next week it turns up, right? And, and it turns, uh, way up, right? And so, um, that's what we've been working to throughout this story. It's a picture of Jesus Christ. It's a picture of the fact that Jesus, that the worst thing that ever happened in the history of the world was actually the best thing that ever happened in the history of the world. And that was the, the, the betrayal, the murder, and the execution of Jesus Christ. Seemed like nothing good could come from it, and yet the salvation of the world is its fruit. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Um, I think what we should do is just ask God that he would strengthen us in these things. That we would would be the kind of people that when those tragedies come, that when those trials come, that we would not uh, lean into doubting God, but that we would lean into God and say, God, I'm going to need you. I need, I need your care during this. I'm not seeing these events as something that are evidence of the fact that you are not with me. I know you are with me and I'm going to need you even more in the midst of these difficulties. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Ask him to impress these things on our hearts. Father God, you are good and gracious to us. God, you, you minister. Oh, you care for us. God, you have given us so much. God, you have given us so much in the person of your son, Jesus Christ. God, we could not ask for anything else. If that was the only way that you had ever blessed us with the salvation that has come to us through Christ, we could ask nothing else. And yet, God, you bless us with a million different things. God, help us to to know and see and sense that you are with us even during the trials. God, minister to our hearts as we as we suffer through those things. God, we ask your mercy in them. We ask that you would bring them out of them, that we would ask that we would see um, the, the purpose behind them and the fruit that could grow from that um, from that blighted ground. But God, give us a sense of your presence that we would know you are always with us. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. We stand and sing the closing song.
Amen. Sorry for the length. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny. My notes were five pages. They're normally six pages. I was like, it's going to be a short night, right? It ever is. If, the, if it's a shorter pages in sermon, I just end up going extra long. Um, so um, thanks for bearing with us. Uh, one announcement, a correction from earlier. Um, the first men's book study is not tomorrow night. So it's, it's, it's going to the 19th. That's two week, uh, two Mondays from now. So, so no men's book study, um, men's ministry book study tomorrow night, uh, pushed back to the 19th. Um, and that will be the intro and the first two chapters. If you want to, if you're going to be a part of that and read for that. Okay. Um, again, good to see you. Um, glad you're here. Um, 
I know a topic that we've sort of been playing around and talking about over and over again in certain ways, but keep on adding little little pieces to it. And so thanks for bearing with us. Um, hope you have a great week. Um, hear this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace. See you next week. If you wouldn't mind sticking around and helping us clean up for just a minute, that would be awesome. Thank you.